to say, whenever my hope is in the Lord comes up in the uh, list of songs to play, my hand starts hurting already because I've got to bounce all over that bass to go back and forth between all those notes. And I'm hitting the neck or something because my finger is really sore. <laughs> so, okay. Let's go and open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter number 3 tonight. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of a longer introduction. We're going to work our way to this in a second, but open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter number 3. Tonight we're going to be dealing with a more touchy subject, but one that I think must be dealt with. I think a lot of times in churches there are errors that have been around for a long time or they've crept into the church and they twist the way that we think about some things. And we need to align our thoughts with the truth. And so before we dive into the text for tonight, I want to deal with two different related topics um, to our issue that we're going to be dealing with tonight. If you wanted to title the message, we're going to be dealing with mixed marriage. Um, we're doing a series on the topic of marriages, and I think this is an important one for us to deal with, and it's, and it's a hard topic. It's not always an easy topic to talk about, but American Christianity has struggled in the past with a racism problem. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention was started because of this. Uh, they uh, separated over these types of issues. But the story of Christianity in America is not so monolithic. It's not like everybody was this way. In fact, primarily Christians and Baptists were the ones who fought for the abolition of the slaves. In fa uh, consider one example, William Wilberforce, not here in America, but over in England. Wilberforce was a student and a disciple of John Newton. What song did John Newton write? Anybody know? Everybody knows. Amazing Grace, right? Okay. John Newton what, had been an ex-slaver who got saved, and he became a Baptist preacher. But because of his background, he fought hard for the abolition of slavery in England. And William Wilberforce was the political arm of his fight. He uh, mentored William Wilberforce. You also have in America a Baptist preacher by the name of David Barrow. Before the Constitution was going to be formed, David Barrow and a lot of Baptists were lobbying for freedoms that weren't already going to be included. In fact, your uh, Bill of Rights that we have, that's because of Baptists who are lobbying for uh, guarantees of certain freedoms within our Constitution. And David Barrow fought for the abolition of the slaves, and he wanted to try to get that included into the Constitution. And he wrote Thomas Jefferson before the Constitution was drafted, and he wrote these words, I trust that bigotry, 
that tarnishes the aspects and sours the temple tempers of so many of the professors of Christianity. Now, this is older English, so I'm going to interpret for you, okay, guys? So, but he's saying, I trust that the type of bigotry that has affected so many Christians, goes on, has never influenced your prejudice so as to be biased your judgment relative to the great subject of religion. So he's praying that that, that mindset hasn't influenced Thomas Jefferson and biased him against churches. He says, I live under flattering expectation that the tolerance of our government will ultimately have the goodly effect to remove those animosities and party spirit that is too visible among the different Christian sects and that they will be led under the influence of that verse that says charity that never fails to meet and embrace one another upon pure apostolic grounds and thereby manifest to an admiring world the native beauty and utility of the doctrine and morality of, Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was hoping that the Constitution, as, as it manifested the tolerance of their government in giving freedoms to people, would help break down some of this, this bitterness and animosity that certain sects of the church felt on, according to this issue. He says, the enclosed scraps of anti-slavery writings will furnish you with a more general idea of some things that have been agitated in this quarter than I have time or room at present to insert. I forward them with a hope that at some leisure hour you may find freedom to drop me some hints that your knowledge, feelings, and observations on the subjects of slavery and emancipation may dictate, which may be helpful to us in our present struggles. So we had Baptist preachers who were lobbying for emancipation and for the freedom of the slaves even before our country began. Others, other ex-slaves like Harriet Tubman, Frederick B Douglass, and Ulida Equiano were all Christians who believed that Jesus was the greatest hope for the slave. And you can understand why they would think this, why, why they would latch on to Christianity, because Christianity preached that in Christ, free man and slave were all equal. Galatians 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female for you're all one in Christ. But even after slavery was abolished in America, a lot of civil liberties were restricted from the African-American people, and America sought to uh, restrict uh, marriages between the whites and the blacks within our country. And in the culture of America, they used theology to do this. They used theology to do it. And they, they followed at least three different lines of thinking. And I want to I show what those are, and then I want to rebut them before we get into our text. Okay? But a lot of American Christianity tried to prove that the black people were a lesser people by appeals to, two, to three different lines of thinking. First of all, and this one I've actually heard personally from somebody who is alive today, that the African American people are a different kind. From Genesis 1 and 2. You remember Genesis 1 and 2? says that, that, that they are to re reproduce after their kind. And so they have said that you, they cannot get married with white people because they are a different kind, and that is a violation of God's expectations for marriage. The problem with that is that kind is a scientific term denoting classifications of a, a suborder or families within the classification system. And it is an inviolatable law. I don't know if I said that word right, okay? But uh, it's a law that can't be broken, okay? Think about it. Cats. Can a cat have a baby with a dog? Anybody? No, it cannot because they are different kinds. And that's this law that God has established. A bird brings forth birds. Cats bring forth cats. Dogs bring forth dogs. 
And that is what Genesis is talking about in Genesis 1 and 2. Acts 17, verse 26 says, And hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. God has made all mankind of one blood. We are one race, one human race. That was one line of thinking. The most popular, though, that they used was actually called, was called the curse of Ham. Um, I first learned about this from attending a Answers in Genesis conference with Ken Ham. Kind of funny. Okay, Ken Ham, answer, uh, curse of Ham. But um, he was talking about this. But it's, it's actually a misnomer to call it the curse of Ham. You remember the story of Noah? When Noah has just gotten off the ark, they, they're settled down. He makes a vineyard, and what happens? He gets drunk, and he gets naked, okay? And his sons discover that he is naked. One of the sons goes and tells the other brothers. But the other brothers stand backwards and cover their father and protect his shame in that situation. But God, or God and Noah placed a curse on that brother who went and spread the message to his other brothers. But it, but it has, isn't actually on the brother himself. Okay? It wasn't on Ham, but it was actually on his son, Canaan. Okay? And so a lot of people said the curse of Ham means that all the blacks are cursed because they are descendants of Ham, which is, by, which is true. Genealogically, they are descendants of Ham. But the curse was not on Ham himself. It was on Canaan, his son. Now, who are the descendants of Canaan? This one's not so hard. The Canaanites. There you go. The Canaanites. What happened to the Canaanites? God brought in Israel, and for the most part, they got wiped out, as long as Israel was obedient, right? Okay. But the, this is a totally different people group. The curse was placed on the Canaanites, and God bringing in the Jews to conquer them was part of fulfilling that curse. But this argument was actually used by Alexander Stevens, who is the vice president of the Confederacy, in his groundbreaking speech when they, when they laid out their new constitution of the Confederated States of America. And it was used to forbid interracial marriage and mixed marriage. Another more popular verse that people, people have used is the idea that the Jews are not to marry the Gentiles. From Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, it says, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, Thy daughter shalt thou not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. Okay, that's pretty clear. The Jews were not to marry the Gentiles. Seems like an ethnic, an ethnic idea. Don't marry those Gentiles because they're different from you. But the, this verse actually tells us exactly why God forbid marrying the Gentiles. It wasn't because they were different ethnically. It wasn't because they had a different color of skin tone. It wasn't because they had a different language or a different culture. His forbidding them to marry the Gentiles, according to the verse, is, for they will turn thy son from following me. That word for tells us reason. That is why God made this, this commandment right here, because he was concerned about their spiritual relationship. And this is where I really want to spend our time tonight, because I'm not talking about physical mixed marriages. That's why I spent that time laying that groundwork. That's not what I think God has forbidden. But what God has forbidden is spiritual mixed marriages. And, and so when he laid out this, this rule that the Jews were not to marry the Gentiles, it was because of their religion, because of their faith, 
because of the influence that their faith would have on the, the Jewish children in turning them away from serving their God. God is concerned with your spiritual relationship with him and the relationship of your children with him. So our text tonight is going to be dealing with spiritually mixed marriages. Now, <clears throat> we've talked about in previous messages as far as dating goes and courtship. There is a principle within the Bible that you should not date somebody who is not saved. And we've talked about that at length, but I want to rehash some of that a little bit here. Okay, people, people who are not saved are not going to be beneficial to you spiritually in your marriage if, if you marry them. But a single person seeking to get married should not be dating somebody who do, does not know God. And we developed that from the story of Isaac and Rebekah. But a, a New Testament verse that we know pretty well, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? Now this verse, if you look it up, you're not going to see marriage mentioned at all in that chapter. That doesn't mean it has nothing to do with marriage. This verse lays out a general principle that applies to many different areas of our lives. It lays out a general principle that a Christian and a lost person should not be yoked together in a partnership or in fellowship, okay? Because they do not have common values. The lost person is dark, according to this text, and the Christian is light. This applies to all kinds of partnerships. Now, you think about marriage. What kind of a partnership could you have that is any greater than marriage? You have joined together in a partnership to share life together, to, if, you, if God blesses you with children, to raise children for the glory of God. And there's no greater partnership than that. And so we should take this principle and we should be able to apply it to marriage as well. It says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. But the reason for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness. There are going to be two separate directions between those partners within a marriage. The lost person's going to want to go one way, and the Christian's going to want to go another way. A Christian's going to want to take their kids to church, I would hope, right? If they're walking with the Lord, they're going to want to be here at church. Is a lost person ever going to really want to be there at church? No, they're not. There's going to be a conflict there, or there's going to be compromise. A Christian's going to want to discipline their children, okay? This is a big one in our society. Bible says to discipline our children, but does our cultural culture accept that as something we should do? No, it does not. And so a lost person and a Christian are going to have different mindsets, most likely, on that issue. A Christian is going to have a different set of morals than a lost person. And more importantly than all of that, a Christian should want their kids to love the Lord. Can you imagine a lost person wanting that for their kids? No, they're, there's, they're not going to be, that's not going to be a priority to a lost spouse. Your values will be different. And the only thing that can happen is either compromise or conflict. That's it. There's always either going to be compromise or conflict in that type of a marriage. But in, rare, in some rare situations, they might get saved. That is true. But is it right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right? No, it is not. If God has said, don't be unequally yoked together, we ought to obey God. 
even if there's a chance, yeah, they might get saved if I marry them. That's, that's not justification for disobeying God. <clears throat> but the main thing we want to talk about tonight is what about the person who is already married to a lost person? Maybe you got married and both of you are lost and then you got, and then you got saved, but he didn't get saved. Okay? How do we handle that type of a situation? Now, in our text today, it's going to be dealing primarily with the wife, okay? So we're going to try to focus on that side of things, and I'll explain why he, he deals primarily with the wife. But the question that we need to ask ourselves is, how do we live in that type of a marriage where my spouse is not a believer? And I think in some ways, these principles even affect a marriage where the spouse is not walking with the Lord like they should be. How do I interact with, with my spouse in those types of situations? The book of 1 Peter was written to a group that Peter calls exiles or strangers and pilgrims in the culture that they are living in. It teaches that this world is not our home, that we have a future kingdom to look forward to. I'm just living here now among people who are, who are uh, against, who are um, different from my way of living. So how do I live as a believer in this exile that I live in right now. And one practical issue you could face is living with an unsaved husband. <clears throat> in Paul's day, um, people would oftentimes, when the gospel was preached, women probably were more, suscept more susceptible to, to listening to the gospel, just like today. I don't know if there's more men or more women in church today, but a lot of times there are more women who go to church and are faithful to worship and serve the Lord than there are husbands. But in Paul's culture, in his day, Roman culture taught that the wife was required to have the same religion as her husband. So it's already setting up a problem if a wife becomes a Christian and her husband is not. So what do you do? Um, one, of the, one, one of the solutions is you could divorce him, right? Paul says, if he wants to stay married with you, no, don't do that. So how should your marriage function if your husband doesn't have your values because he is not a believer? But Peter is going to give us in this text, he's going to give us two commands, and then he's going to give us a reason for it. Let's st start in 1 Peter chapter number 3, starting in verse number 1. It says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husband, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. The very first word of our text is the word likewise, which kind of ties us back to the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, Peter has developed this idea that Jesus Christ suffered and he didn't revile back again. In fact, in verse 22, it says, who did no sin, Neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, 
should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now turned, returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And then the next word, likewise. Okay? Likewise means in the same way. How did Jesus suffer the reviling or the, the persecution from the lost world? He reviled not back again. He reviled not back again. And I think of, when you think of a marriage relationship where a husband is not saved, there's, like I said, there's only two options. There's conflict or there's compromise, right? If you take a stand, he's probably going to bring some conflict into that marriage. And when he reviles, when he makes fun of you for your faith, when he persecutes you for your faith, how are we to respond? We are to respond likewise in the way that Jesus Christ did, reviling not back again. When Jesus was mistreated, he didn't rant and rail. He didn't put up a fight and scream. He bore our sin. He took it on himself. In the same way, wives, Peter says, with that attitude, be in subjection unto your own husbands. And the main command of verse number one here, and this is the main point, the first thing that Peter tells us to do is, likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. <clears throat> Peter addresses the wives here. And not primarily the husbands, because it would be normal, like I said, for the wife to have the religion of her husband. So, but if a wife gets saved, her husband's probably not necessarily going to get saved just because she got saved. But if he gets saved, she probably will, according to their culture. It's more likely that when the husband... And I think, honestly, in a lot of times in situations in America, if a husband gets saved, what happens? Generally, the whole family follows suit, Right? That's, you have strong Christian homes when the husband gets saved. But when the wife gets saved, a lot of times you have a split home. You, she maybe brings the kids with her to church, but they're not on the same page. And so even what was happening back then still happens in our culture today even. And in a patriarchal society, a wife had few rights, and she was likely to be mistreated. So that's why Peter addresses the wives. You're going to be in this situation more likely than the husbands are. So how, how, what can I encourage you to do in light of that situation? He tells them to be in subjection. Subjection is the idea of being submitted or to put yourself under the authority of someone else. When a soldier in the military doesn't like what his commander is telling him to do, what does he do? Anybody in the or previously in the military here? No? I got one, okay. So if your commander tells you what to do, what, what are your options? You do it, okay? So you do it. Because you've submitted yourself to his authority. You've placed yourself under his authority. Even if you don't like it, you still do it. <clears throat> That's the idea of submission is, is uh, you obey. Submission really, in my, in my mind, it implies a disagreement. But because it is a choice to obey even when I disagree. Notice the command is to your own husbands in this text. It's not saying, women, you need to be subjected and subservient to all men on, across the whole face of the earth. That's not what Peter is saying. He's saying to be submitted or to be subjected to your own husbands. Okay? <clears throat> Verse 2 here adds another layer to this. It says, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Now this idea of, of fear is respect you are living a chaste conversation, a holy, a pure lifestyle, but you do it with respect. <clears throat> so it adds, adds not only to this of submission, but also respecting your husband. How many of us as adults really act like children? 
When you tell a child, go clean your room, and they don't want to do it, what do, they, what do they do? They throw a temper tantrum. They kick and they scream. They complain. They whine, right? How, how many times are we told to do something that we don't like, and we do the same thing? We kick and scream, and we yell and complain in our own little adult ways, okay? So <laughs> we complain and we gripe when, some, when things aren't the way that we want them to. It's one thing to obey, but it is another thing to obey with the right attitude. And he tells us here that we are to, that the wives are to submit to their husbands, but they are to submit with coupled with, you know, with a chaste conversation coupled with fear. Now, the, the next phrase in verse number one is key here. It says, if any obey not the word. This is a clear reference to a lost husband. The implication is that the character of your husband has nothing to do with whether you submit or not. Okay, Because if your husband is lost, is he going to do what's right most of the time? No, he's not going to want to do what's right. If he is lost, is he going to want to please God? Is he going to want to obey God? And yet we are told that we should be submitting to them, to this lost husband who doesn't have our values. We are to, to, to submit to them. Peter gives us an example in verses 5 through 6 here. He says, For after this manner in the old time the holy women also who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Notice these women are called holy women. They're spiritual women. And it says here that these holy women trusted in God. And the question I, I think that we need to ask ourselves is, can you trust God when your husband's an idiot? We have plenty of those, right? Okay, so I, men probably are idiots more often than, than wives are. I'm just going to be honest, okay? So, but can you trust God to submit to your husband even when he's, he's foolishly making a mistake? That's the time that most times wives want to rip control back out of their husband's hands when they know he's doing something stupid, when they know he's going to make a mistake. <clears throat> But these women, they trusted in God. And so how did they adorn themselves? It says they adorned themselves being in subjection onto their own husbands. And that's directly tied. Because they trusted in God, they, they were in subjection to their own husbands. Then in verse 6 it says, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. This is the idea of the respect that she showed to her husband. Sarah obeyed and she respected her husband. She even goes so far as to call him Lord or Master. Now, I can't really find a whole lot of Bible verses where Sarah calls Abraham Lord, but let's turn to Genesis 18, verse number 12, because this is probably the closest one to it. Genesis 18, verse number 12. <clears throat> this is when God comes to Abraham and tells Sarah that she or tells Abraham that Sarah's going to have a baby. She's in the tent, and she laughs. Verse number 12 says, Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure? And then the next phrase, My Lord being old also. Now we don't have any verses where she directly tells Abraham, calls him Lord. But that one right there, she's thinking within herself, My Lord being old. That's a clear reference to her husband. She's saying, Abraham's old too. It's not just me. My Lord is old. And so that's, that's probably the reference here that is being talked about. But he says in the next phrase, whose daughters ye are as long as you do well. 
as, as wives who are, who are married to, our hus- to your husbands, we can be, in a sense, a daughter of Sarah by the submission and the respect that we show to our husbands. So the first struggle that a wife is going to have if she's in a mixed marriage, a marriage where her husband is not saved, is going to be a temptation to rule her husband. She's going to want to take over. She's going to want to lead because she knows he's wrong. She has placed her faith in Jesus Christ, and he needs that. And she might become overbearing with it and try to get him to come her way. So she's going to have that temptation to rule. And the solution to that is that she is to be in submission, to obey her husband, and to respect him. Verses 3 through 4 give us the second command. It says, Whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of the plating the hair, and of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and, and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. The se- second temptation a saved wife may face being married to a lost husband is to try and keep her husband by her beauty alone. And that, that's why Peter challenges her to not let her adorning be merely the, the plating of the hair or the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel. I'm not going to interpret all those different phrases there, um, but the idea here is that her focus isn't to be on the exteriors. Peter challenges her not to adorn herself with the externals, but to focus on the adorning of a meek and a quiet spirit. Many women, when they feel their husband is pulling away, the solution that they feel they need to resort to is to just make myself look a little bit more pretty, make myself look a little bit more attractive so I can keep my husband. And in in this situation where the husband is not even saved, she may be tempted to do that as well. And this is why the pull of immodesty, I think, is so prevalent in our society today. Um, But a wife who feels that her husband is pulling away from her may have that same temptation as a single woman does. Uh, She may feel that the best plan of attack is to put on nicer clothes, do my hair up, put my makeup on so that I I can be pretty. And now, understand me, I'm not saying you should be ugly. I'm not saying you shouldn't put on makeup and nice clothes, okay? Some people have taken this verse and said you should never braid your hair or wear jewelry. But the problem with that is this last phrase, or of putting on of apparel. I really hope you guys put on clothes, okay? So if if this verse is intended to say don't do any of this, we've got a problem, okay? So that is not what Peter is intending to say. He He is trying to say let it not be this idea of I'm going to focus on the externals and make myself beautiful to to keep him. But rather, let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit. Character matters more than beauty. We talked about this with dating as well. What is it that you are looking for in a wife? Um, A good question I heard asked this week, I won't say it to whom or by whom, except I'm looking at my wife. Now, so, was, what is it that drew you to this person? That's a, that, I think that's a pretty good probing question for teens who are interested in, in a potential spouse. What is it that draws you to that person? Is it merely that they look good? Or do you look for and do you desire to find a wife or a husband who has character? Because character matters more than beauty. And we need to work on being the type of wife I can't work on this. I'm sorry. I'm not a wife. But we need to work on the being the type of wife um, that has the type of character 
that he will notice. And it will draw him to Christ because of how you live your life. This, des- this text describes this inner beauty, this beautiful inner man, as a meek and quiet spirit. This doesn't mean silent, okay? Let's make that clear. This doesn't mean silent. Peter is saying women should, is not saying that women should be seen and not heard. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Okay, but that is not what Peter is saying. Meekness means strength under control. It comes from a, a word that, that is used to describe horses that have been um, totally broken, but they have been trained so that they could be harnessed to do labor. And uh, they have strength, but they, but they are under control at the same time. Are you controlled or do you give in to whatever whims and emotions are roiling underneath inside of you? The second word here, which we would think probably implies silence, it says quiet spirit, right? A quiet spirit, it should mean no, no noise, right? That's not what it means, okay? The word actually is the idea of tranquility. Now, tranquility does involve less noise, at least, okay? So, but tranquility is the idea of peace. You think of a nice, calm pond and being alone by yourself. This is, this is my heaven right here, okay? Being alone by yourself by a nice pond, relaxing, no screaming, no cars honking, no noise around, There's, but except for maybe the frogs going gulp, gulp, and the crickets chirping, but it's peaceful, right? It's not necessarily silence, but it is peaceful. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do you bring peace to your marriage? Or is everything a fight? Is everything chaos? A lost husband is not going to be drawn to the Lord. A carnal husband is not going to be drawn into a closer walk with the Lord by a wife who is constantly badgering him, by a wife who brings chaos into the home who is constantly fighting. Related to this idea is the idea of being a loud woman, a woman who is overly, overly talkative. And to be honest, being a loud man or being a loud woman is not necessarily a good thing. Do the words you say and the way you say them bring calm to your marriage? This type of spirit, it's not just good for your marriage. But Peter says in this text, it is in the sight of God of great price. It is valuable to your marriage But more than that, it is of great price to God. God values it, and it is precious to him. So the wife who's married to an unsaved husband is, first of all, to be submissive and respecting her husband. But she is also to focus not on the outward, but on the inner man, being this quiet and having this meek and quiet spirit. But the reason we kind of skipped over in verse number one, let's go back to verse one, says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Tucked into this verse is, is the reason. Why should you be submissive? Why should you respect your unsaved husband? Why should you focus on character and inner beauty and having a meek and a quiet spirit? The reason is that they may be won by the conversation of the wives. They may be one. While there is no guarantee that your husband will get saved, this is the best way to get to that goal, to be the type of wife that God wants you to be. They, and they might just be one by your lifestyle. That phrase there, it says, by the conversation of the wives. Conversation is the idea of lifestyle. It's not talk per se. It is lifestyle. And some people, they're big into criticizing lifestyle evangelism, but that's actually what this verse is saying. 
It is saying that he may be one without the word. Do you see that? Without the word. He doesn't need you to nag him into the kingdom. Okay? That's, that's not going to produce results. Be kind of like uh, the guy over here who told us to get, uh, when we knock on his door, he says, get off my, my doorstep. And we decide we're going to go to his doorstep every single day. Is he ever going to be one step closer to heaven by us constantly knocking on his door and nagging him to get saved? No, he is not. And the wife who is constantly nagging her husband to get saved is not going to accomplish that goal. I, I believe he knows the gospel because he knows she's a Christian. She has to have said it at one time. He, she has to have talked to him about her faith at some point. Otherwise, this conflict wouldn't have even been there. But Peter is saying that her lifestyle, her conversation, can be used to win him to the Lord without the word. So that I believe that this is the main reason why a, hus a wife in an unsaved marriage should live in this way, is so that she could possibly see her husband come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As he sees the reality of the gospel in her life, it will convict him and show him the truth of the gospel. I think this is really what most people want to see. They don't necessarily want to hear our words. They don't necessarily want to hear all the Bible verses we can quote from memory. What they want to see is the truth of the gospel in our lives, lived out in our lives. They want to know that it is real to us, that it has changed who we are. And can you imagine a, a marriage, I think of, I'll just use Katie's parents as an example, okay? Katie's parents, before they got saved, they were on the verge of divorce, okay? Because there was conflict all the time. They were fighting. They, they didn't want to be around each other. I think your parents and you were living in North Carolina with your grandparents. Your mom and you were living in North Car Carolina, Virginia. Your dad was in North Carolina. That's what it was. They were separated at that time. And that's how a lot of marriages are. But you know what God did? God saved her dad, and it changed who he was. And because God saved her dad, her mom saw that, saw how it had actually changed him. It wasn't just words he was saying, but his life was changed, and it drew her to the Lord. And that changed their family dynamic right there. And that is what Peter is talking about right here. If you're married to somebody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, be the spouse that God has called you to be. be if uh, You could flip the tables here. Be the husband that God wants you to be and love your wife. Show her unconditional love that she's never experienced before and maybe she'll get saved. If you're the, if you're the wife, be the type of wife that God has called you to be. Submit to your husband in, in respect and focus on the inner character and God may just use that to lead your spouse to the Lord. So Peter here gives us two ways to possibly see them get saved. By submitting in respect and being a godly wife that God has called you to be, they might just get saved. We're going to go ahead and close tonight with uh, invitation. Let's go ahead and stand. <clears throat>